0: You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 to the end of the chapter. Follow along in your Bible. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you, not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves yourselves. The evil person. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we uh, just come before you in prayer this morning. Lord, I just want to acknowledge that this is a tough text for us to not, uh, n- not understand, but to apply, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us strength and that you would give us understanding. And that, Lord, you would guide us in every situation. Lord, we lift this church up to you, and we pray that your will would be done here. Lord Jesus, that we would simply hear your word and simply follow your word. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would bless the men and women that are gathered here this morning, as well as the children and the youth. And Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak and minister to us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You, you may be seated. So, <clears throat> We've been studying through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we are in a tough part of this letter. It's a letter... Uh, that is a corrective letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the people at the church in Corinth. The church was experiencing several specific problems. We've already talked about their lack of unity. There was a lot of division happening in the church. Paul addressed that in the first chapter. He also addressed their worldly attitude. They were very worldly in the way that they approached things. And he also had to uh, rebuke them for their pride. And he's looking now to correct their behavior concerning a a brother in the church that was practicing sexually immoral behavior, a gross sexually immoral sin and and incest in that he was uh, sleeping in an active sleeping relationship, intimate relationship with his stepmom. So this is something that was very extreme and uh, Paul has to, you know, unfortunately correct them. But I sure am thankful that he did. I sure am thankful that he wrote this letter. Because in this, he shows us, hey, that all the churches throughout, ever since their inception, churches have had difficulties. They've had problems. And, and it's because we're stinky people. <laughs> we have a flesh nature. We have a desire to please ourselves, and we often put ourselves first above and beyond even the principles of God's Word. And, and so it's good that this has been written so that we can compare our lives to the Scriptures, and to allow the Scriptures to direct and guide us that are living today. Now, this is tough subject matter, as I said before. Uh, It's something that, you know, I I don't relish preaching on this kind of things, but at the same time, I'm going to do it every time that we come across it in the Word. That's why we study the Word verse by verse at Calvary Chapel. We want to touch on all of the themes, all of the counsel of God, um, and that's what we're, we're doing this morning. But I want to remind us that peppered throughout this corrective letter, we always find Paul's motive for doing it, and it is love. At the base of all of his motive for what he writes and what he does is love. Love for the Lord and love for God's people. If you remember in his greeting, he reminisces with them about the good things that God has done in and through their lives there in the church in Corinth. He calls them his brothers and reminds them that he has a brotherly love, a family love for them. In chapter 4, Paul addresses them with the love of a mother, that he's concerned for them as a mother would be concerned for a child. And not only that, he also refers to himself as their spiritual father and appeals to them on that basis of a spiritual father. He really sees love as his motive and as what is to be their motive. The the love for the Lord is to motivate the church to walk in obedience. And the love for each other is to motivate them to be able to handle even the tough situations in life. Those moments when you actually have to sit down and talk about the sin that is in the midst. He tells them the most loving thing that they can do in chapter 5 is to put this man who is practicing this gross immoral sin to put him outside of the church until he was ready to repent and to be restored. And as he goes on now to finish his thoughts in the rest of chapter 5 on this matter of church discipline, he's making this point, and this is the theme of our message. He's saying God's children are not to judge outsiders, but they are to identify sin and seek to restore fellow family members. So the judging that's to take place is not this condemnation of people outside the church. God will take care of that. That's his realm. We need to stay out of his realm, and we need to identify sin and restore fellow family members in our church, in our body. Now, uh, our, our first and only point this morning, following along in your outline, is dealing with sin both inside and outside the church. Paul kicks it off there in verse 9, if you'll follow along with me. I'd like to read over it again. He said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. I want to pause here. Now this verse reminds us, it shows us that Paul had written a former letter to the church at Corinth. There was a letter before First Corinthians that he had written to the people there. And in that letter, he had spoken about this problem. But they had misunderstood him. They had misunderstood that he, d- he didn't mean uh, that they were to, you know, completely uh, pull away from the world. That's how they took it. And, and, and instead, they were to embrace, you know, and tolerate sin in their midst. They took it the wrong way. We don't know everything that Paul said in that first letter. But we do see here that he's clarifying what he has already mentioned. So they had misunderstood him. And thought that they were to stop associating with people outside the church. But Paul is going to correct that in verse 10. Look at what he says. He said, I certainly, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. He's like, this is, re- that's kind of ridiculous, guys. To think that I would say, hey, don't ever associate with somebody that, you know, has one of these sins going on in the world. That would mean that you'd have to like have your own Christian community and your own Christian, you know, maybe state or something like that. Can you imagine a place like that? I would never want to live there. Okay. Personally, <laughs> I would loathe living in a Christian island or a Christian. It would be the weirdest place on the planet. I have no doubt. People would be all up in your business and judging you. It would be, it would be a weird place to live. That's not what Paul says. He's, he's not saying you need to go out of the world. You know, his thought here is in the same vein as what Jesus Christ meant when he was praying in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, Jesus says very clearly that his followers were in the world, but they were not of that w- of the world. Being in the world, but not of the world, speaks of a purpose and an opportunity. It, it reminds us that as Jesus' people, hey, we've been put in the world with a purpose, and that is to share the good news about what Jesus Christ came to offer the world. And it's precisely to the world that we've been sent. There is and always will be a sort of a tension, though, as to how that's played out in our lives, isn't it? We don't always know exactly, you know, where to draw those lines. We, we just know that we're not to be of the world So Jesus wants us to be in the world, but not that means that we're not to be participating in the sin that the world participates in. That's the model that Paul has in mind here in verse 10. He's saying that it would be impossible to never associate with those that are in the world. And in in verse 11, let's see who Paul is talking about then. In verse 11, he says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a violer or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. I want to break this down. I want to break this verse down piece by piece so that we get a clear understanding of what Paul means. First of all, he says that he's writing to them to tell them not to keep company or to associate with certain people. The Greek word for keep company literally means to mix it up. Okay. So he's saying don't mix it up. Now, It is difficult to distinguish exactly what mixing it up might entail, but Paul does give us one example of what he means by mixing it up at the end of verse 11. He says, eating with such a person would be considered mixing it up. So the idea that Paul is conveying here is that by associating with or mixing it up or keeping company with someone, you're giving them the idea that you support what they're doing. You support their sinful actions. So that is what Paul is talking about by not mixing it up or not keeping company with. Now, who are the people that we're not to do that with? He says, anyone named a brother. Now, that means specifically anyone who claims to be a fellow child of God. Someone who says they're a believer. Someone who claims to be a Christian or a Christ follower. And yet, this is the catch. They are practicing sinful lifestyle. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul gives a a bit of a list here, doesn't he? He gives a list of some of the sins that he wants us to to make note of. First of all, he talks about sexually immoral. Sexually immoral is sexual activity that's associated with lust that is outside of the marriage covenant between a husband and a wife. That's what sexual immorality is. He says covetous, that's eager for greed, or eager for gain, a a greedy person, someone that desires something that someone else has, and that's their lifestyle, that's the way that they're living, Uh, and idolatry, he puts idolatry in here, that literally means image worshiper, And, and we all know that anything can become an image in our lives that we worship, that we live for, that becomes our passion, we can put it above God. You know, whether that be uh, money or the comforts that money brings, whether that be something like your job, whether it becomes uh, an entertainment outlet in your life. We can put that too high and it can become something that we idolize. Uh, He also mentions here reviler. That word reviler, it literally means abusive. Someone who uses contemptuous speech in the way that they talk to others. Now, this is a, a good one for us guys to, to realize is on this list. Because I, I hear some of the way that men talk to their wives. And, and you know what? It's very contemptuous and disrespectful. And it would be classified in this sin of reviling. This abusive speech towards the, in the way that you treat other people. And, and you know, it's, it's a dangerous thing. And something that we need to realize and recognize, that's what a reviler is. So so oftentimes in the church we think that, well, it's it's okay because the man is supposed to be the leader. He's the spiritual leader in the home. and And some Christian men take that to mean, well, I'm the dictator, you know, I'm the king of my castle. Baloney, baloney. Paul says right here, man, don't be practicing that. That's something that's dangerous to get into. And, and then he goes down and, and talks about a drunkard, the next one there on the list, drunkard. That's someone that's surrendered to the influence of a substance. Substance abuse. It doesn't just have to be beer or wine, although that's probably what Paul was uh, primarily referring to here. But in today's day and age, guys, we need to be talking about things like marijuana, the legalization of marijuana as well. I believe that within 10 years, Every state in the United States of America is going to legalize the use of marijuana. And we need to realize that just because something is legal doesn't mean it's good for you. Doesn't mean that it's something that God wants us to practice. And we need to be careful with these sorts of things. We need to understand that. Now, I'm not saying that marijuana could never have any good use as as medicine or something like that. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying here that we need to realize that when we surrender ourselves to the influence of a substance, that's sin. That's sinful. It's a sinful lifestyle. And if we continue to do that over and over and that we make that our lifestyle, hey, there's a problem there, Paul's saying. We're, we're, we're not to be those kinds of people. And then he says extortioner. An extortioner is someone here who, who would cheat somebody else, someone who cheats others, someone that is, is a robber of sorts whether they're stealing from the government by cheating on their taxes and, and lying about that, or whether it's, it's someone who's an employer and they're cheating their uh, employees out of fair wages and fair treatment. That's an extortioner. There's all kinds of different uh, extortion that goes on in the name of business and, 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 and in the name of capitalism and, and those sorts of things. We need to be beware that we don't fall... On, in, in this list, we need to be aware that hey, this is not something now I, I will say this if we 're honest with each other and with the Lord, we have to recognize, hey, we probably are guilty of some of the things on this list at certain times in our life if we 're honest if we, if we truly open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit and allow him to point out these things in our lives, we would have to say, hey, I know that i 've practice some of these things on this list from time to time. But this is where I need to say this. The list is not the most important thing that Paul is trying to get across here. He's trying to get across to us the principle of practicing unrepentant sin. That is the danger here. That is what Paul is warning against. There's a difference when, uh, you know, somebody, you know, trips up and stumbles into sin and falls into one of these sins every now and then, but they're struggling against it, they're, they're fighting against it, they're resisting it, and they don't want to do that. And when they do, they confess it, and they repent from that, and they get back on the right track. And there's a difference between someone who's unrepentant in that. There's a difference when you refuse to admit that what you're doing is wrong. You see, when we become rebellious, When we refuse to confess or to say the same thing as God says about our sin, that's when we're in trouble. That's when we need to be, uh, we need a wake up call. You see, there's a difference between a sinner and an unrepentant sinner in the scriptures. Someone who is an unrepentant sinner is making sin their way of life, they're making sin a lifestyle. Sin is something that affects us all at some point or other, but it's what we do when we're confronted with that sin that makes all the difference, okay? And we need to recognize that. What is our response when we sin? Ask yourself that question this morning. How do you respond to sin in your life? When the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, that's his job according to John chapter 16, verse 8. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is with us to convict us concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit is going to bring you to a point of conviction if you belong to the Lord. And what do we do when he does that? Ask yourself that question. What What do I do when I'm confronted and, and convicted about my sin? You know, one of my favorite family videos of our son e- Elijah when he was a young Uh, little boy, I think three years old, two or three years old, Uh, my wife uh, filmed him one time as he was kind of uh, caught in the act of doing some things in the bedroom. We had all of our kids sleeping in one bedroom there. We had a two-bedroom house in Costa Rica, and we had all four kids sleeping in one bedroom. And so it was imperative that they would all cooperate in order to get some sleep. Well Elijah wasn't cooperating one one particular time. He was getting up and turning the fan off and he was he liked to I think sing the ABCs into the fan and sound like Darth Vader and things like that and you know in Costa Rica you need the fan so turning it off was not a hit. He was bothering the other kids. And so my wife was confronting him about this behavior and she asks him in the video she says Elijah, you know, did you turn the fan off and he says no and and then you know it moves on Elijah did you sing the were you singing the ABCs no no i wasn't singing the, he didn't want to admit and this rebecca says elijah you don't want to lie you, you, you do you want to get do you want to get a swat and and he says well how many swats will i get you know <laughs> And so he begins to play the game of like, do I admit this? How many swats am I going to get? And he asks the question, you know, am I going to get four swats if I tell you that I was, you know? And, and Rebecca's just kind of trying to zero in on the point that, hey, you're not supposed to lie, you know? And good luck, you know, with little kids, you know, you're trying to figure that out. But that's how we all are, isn't it? We don't want to admit that we've done something wrong. And if we are going to admit, we want to know in advance. Well, first, let me know how many swats I'm going to get. You know, what's the discipline involved? Because that's going to be, you know, that's going to, whether or not I admit it, is based on that. But listen, that's, we need to get to a point where we realize that's, that's just God's way of loving us. God loves us so much that he's not going to let us get away with those things, per se, He's going to lovingly correct us. Now, God always, in in, in my experience, he's always, always so loving and gentle about the way he goes about bringing me back around to his ways. But we need to realize that's his way of loving us too. He wants to come close to us so that we'll come close to him and to admit what we did, to acknowledge it's not good and to receive forgiveness and restoration. You see, when we do that, the guilt is washed away the guilt is washed away. See, confession is given to us as a gift. It's actually a gift from the Lord to us that liberates us from the hold that sin has and guilt and shame and those things that chain us up and hold us back. That's how we get free of those things is through confession. The Lord wants us to run to him. That's the purpose of the Holy Spirit, is to get us to admit what we've done and acknowledge it's not good and receive forgiveness for it and restoration to fellowship. Paul goes on to complete this point about judging those who are in the family of God, not outside it in verse 12. He says, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? So two rhetorical questions there. Uh, of course, you know, we, we should know the answers to those. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So Paul is calling on us here to take a difficult step and to begin to take care of God's house from the inside, not to assume God's place by judging those on the outside. You see what happens when we pass judgment on those who are outside the church? We're actually elevating ourselves to the place of God in their lives. We're taking God's seat, and we're saying, hey, I'm going to condemn you as a sinner before the time has even come for God to judge that person. And it's wrong, Paul says. That's God's place. That's God's seat alone. We're not to take that seat. Interestingly enough, though, many Christians have it backwards, don't we? See, we think that we're God's anointed judges and and we're called to pronounce judgment on the world because they are sinners. Hey, that's backwards. That's not the way God wanted it to be. I'm not saying that we shouldn't recognize and identify and call out sin in society when we see it because sin is sin, but we need to guard against becoming self-righteous and unloving towards the people who are lost. Of course they're sinners. That's what they know. You were a sinner too before Jesus Christ came into your life and saved you. And so Paul is saying, listen, we're not to go out and cut ourselves off from the world. That would be ludicrous. That would be ridiculous. Those are the very people that God loves and is seeking to save those which are lost. God's heart is that we would announce the good news for sinners, not pronounce judgment on them. You know, God wants us to identify sin in our midst and to confess it so that we can be restored to fellowship with him. Turn over to Galatians this morning, Galatians chapter 6, please. This verse will also appear on the screen if you don't want to flip over there, but Galatians chapter 6, and I want to read verses 1 and 2 with you. And I'm going to read from the New Living Translation just because I love that translation so much for these verses. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey The law of Christ. You see, church, what the Bible instructs us to do when it comes to sin and sinners is we're to love the sinners and we're to exclude ourselves from the sin. We're not to participate in the sin. When it comes to people that are not in the church, they're not believers, they're not professing to know Christ hey, we're to announce the good news to them and we're to love on them in the sense of we share the gospel with them. We're to point them to Jesus. But when it comes to sin within the church, someone that professes to be a believer, we're to begin in our own hearts, in our own lives. Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter seven, verse five. He says, you hypocrites. He says, first take the log that's in your own eye and remove that Before you go and talk about the speck that's in your brother's eye and you help him with that. So that's the first thing that we're to do is we're to look inward. We're to, we're to examine ourselves. And then when we have the right attitude, like Galatians chapter six, verses one and two says, when we've gotten to a place where we're ready to actually humbly and gently come alongside of a brother or a sister, that's when we're to go to them with a heart of restoration. You see, within the church, identification of sin is never to be taken apart from the motive of restoration. Jesus Christ taught us that in Matthew chapter 18. He laid down the teaching for the church in Matthew chapter 18. If you'll flip there in your Bibles, I'd like to cover a few verses from Matthew 18 with you this morning as we close out our message. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus, again, he's talking about the community of believers, how we're to operate in community, especially when it comes to the sticky situations like sin in our lives, when our sin affects other people, here's how we're to deal with it. Matthew 18 verse 15, Jesus lays out a very clear three-step process. He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell it to the world. Is that what it says? Okay. I was just waiting for you to pick up on that. I was kind of, I was like, man, is anybody reading this verse? Or Okay, so some of you are paying attention. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. We need to underline that portion. You and him alone. So you don't go to your girlfriend. You don't call up your mother You don't call up anybody except this one person who has sinned against you. And it says, Jesus says, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. Do you see the heart of the Lord there? His heart is for restoration. His heart is to gain that brother back to a life of holiness and pleasing to God. That's where the Lord's heart is at. And that is why I say identification of sin is never to be separate from that heart, that motive of restoration That love of your brother to gain him back. If you don't have that, then you shouldn't go. You shouldn't even go. You should just uh, deal with it in your own heart. Now, uh, secondly, here we, we see in verse 16, but if you will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So the first step was to go privately and to talk with him. If he hears you and he confesses, then it becomes your turn to forgive and to move forward. But if that person doesn't confess their sin, in other words, they refuse to hear, they refuse to admit their wrongdoing, Jesus says step two is to bring in a witness. You bring in someone that is familiar with that situation uh, someone that you trust, someone that's a, a spiritual person, you bring them in and you sit down and you talk with them again. And your goal is to, 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 you know, to lead that person to a place where they're willing to confess and admit and restore that relationship. Now, if they're still not willing to admit wrongdoing, then it's time to bring it to the church leadership, Jesus says in verse 17. He says, And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So it's in this third step that Jesus says, okay, now you bring in church leadership. You bring the witnesses. You bring that victim. We all sit down together. We talk with that person concerning their sin and with with a heart to gain that brother back to a life of holiness and fellowship both with that person and with the Lord." And guys, that's, that's basically what marriage counseling is all about. You've got a husband and a wife, and usually both of them are witnesses of something that's gone on and, and something that's wrongdoing, and, and usually both sides. And, and, and as we sit down, we talk about that, and we try to work through that. We try to find the biblical solution for that. But listen, if both people are willing to confess, and they're both going, yeah, I admit, I've got a part in this, then, then we're getting somewhere. But it's when people say, "You know what? I refuse to admit any wrongdoing. I refuse to confess. I refuse." That's when we get. That's when we get problems. That's when we get into big time problems. That's where uh, a lot of times, you know, the hard heartedness of those people leads them down a path, and, and it's just a, a path of destruction and division. So, uh, you know. Jesus says at that point, listen, there, there comes a point when you ha- actually have to look at that person and realize, okay, this person really doesn't have a relationship with the Lord. They really don't love the Lord enough to confess their sin, to say the same thing as he's saying about your sin, and to move forward, and that's a problem. And and also, we realize, okay, the, and plus they don't love their brother or their sister in the Lord, and that is also a problem. That's a heart problem. Um, I want to read Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 22. Um, Because right here in the same context of doing community together, Jesus talks about forgiveness. It says that Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven And then he goes on to tell a parable about a servant who was in debt to his master. So much debt, he would never have been able to pay it off in his lifetime. And Jesus says that the landowner forgives him that debt. And and then he goes, that servant that was forgiven, he goes and finds another uh, lesser slave who owes him a lot less and he has him thrown in prison until he can pay that back. And, and, And Jesus you know, is telling that whole story, you can read it on your own sometime, but he's telling that whole story to show us that your debt, your sin, that God has forgiven you through Christ Jesus, was that, that debt that was so great you would have never, you'll, you'll never be able to pay it off. You'll never be able to pay it back. But God, in his love and his mercy, has forgiven you freely for all of your crimes against a holy God. And you and I need to realize that when we're holding things against a brother or a sister, man, it is so petty in comparison to what God has done. I'm not trying to say that what somebody has done to you, what somebody has sent against you is a petty thing. I realize that that is, you know, that's, that's a whole different matter. But what I am saying is that in comparison to how great a debt that God has forgiven you and what he is willing to give you, is so small in comparison to that. Now, I'm not saying, again, it's not a small incident in your life. I recognize that. But it is something that you've got to learn to give to the Lord, and you've got to forgive, and you've got to be able to move forward. And that only happens through a relationship with the Lord. Um, but we could talk more about that at a different time. So I close this morning. What is your attitude? What is your attitude towards sin in your own life. How do you feel about sin in your own life when somebody points something out to you? When someone shares with you that you have got an anger problem or that you kind of speak a little bit disrespectfully in your tone? How, How do you respond when someone brings something to your attention about your attitude, maybe a negative attitude that you've got going on in your life? What about if you're the person who has to approach somebody? How do you approach somebody when you're talking to them? You know, wives, are you, you know, talking to your husbands in a respectful way? Or are you talking to them in a kind of a contemptuous way? Well, what's your problem, you know? And how come, how come you can't be like so-and-so, you know? And, and comparing them to somebody else, that's not the way to do it. Hey, we are all challenged by this teaching from God's Word. Me, just as much as anybody else. I I recognize sin in my own life. I recognize there are things that I struggle with as well. And this teaching, like all the teachings of Jesus Christ, hey, it can only be followed by people who really love the Lord because they've been born again. People who have been born again, spiritually speaking. And like, uh, like, like all Christians, we need the Holy Spirit. We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to carry out the obedience that is necessary in these teachings. You know, we have to learn to be yielded to the Holy Spirit because it's impossible to do this in our own strength. I want to close with this. It all comes back to love. The right motive in Paul's heart is love. And the right motive that we need to operate from in all of this is love. So we need to ask ourselves, you know, how is my love for the Lord? Because if I'm not willing to confess sin and say the same thing as he says about it, that speaks of a heart problem in my life between me and the Lord. And if I'm not willing to love a brother or sister enough to work on sin in my life and to admit it and to seek to change and to grow, then that speaks of a heart problem in my life. You know, as we close, Paul's message for us is that God's children are not to be judging outsiders, but we are to identify sin and seek to restore fellow family members. Church, Calvary Chapel, Paris, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do this? And, and, and are we going to do this? You know, sp- the, the gauge of spiritual maturity within a church is not how good we are at pointing out sin. Identity of sin is no problem. I can see my sin in you all day long. It's not hard to do. What is hard to do, what is a gauge of true spiritual maturity, is can I gently and humbly come alongside of you? Can you gently and humbly come alongside of me? Can we admit when we're wrong? And can we seek to pursue righteousness together? That's that's the test. That's the test that the Lord has for us, and it's not easy. But you know what? I believe God makes it this way. This is one of the ways that he separates the chaff from the wheat, guys, is are we going to follow Christ's teachings in these areas? It's not easy. It is not easy. We need the Lord. We need the Holy Spirit. But we can do it with his help. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing but abiding in Christ. Hey, he's got great things in store. He's got great things in store for us. Let's pray.